are y'all? Welcome to another episode of the Good Newscast. Great to have you as always. Um, last night we record this. This will probably this will probably hit the, episode, uh, the the podcast today, February 10th, or tomorrow at the latest, February 11th. Last night, Wednesday night, we had our first theology after dark um, at Redeemer. Um, it was a night on baptism. We have a lot of people at Redeemer. Uh, we baptize infants at Redeemer, but we have a lot of people who don't necessarily know what they think about that. We have people who are baptized as infants and they uh, haven't really ever maybe thought through the issue heavily and they don't know where they stand or people who weren't baptized as infants uh, who now baptize their babies like me. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have people all over the map. This is a point of great, I would say, um, praise for us that we are reaching people outside yeah. the Presbyterian walls. Yeah, um, definitely so, outside this tradition, yeah. Um, so that's why we did that. Um, it was really to help our congregation understand our view of baptism. And w- what we did is we had a, a local pastor friend um, come uh, who is a Baptist, who they do not baptize babies at their church, and he had 30 minutes to present his position on what is baptism and why they don't baptize babies. Um, and then Jeff spoke after 30 minutes on why we do. The idea there is that you can you can understand a position of view, a theological view, better when you understand the opposition to it. It's only going to make it all the more clear. And so that was the whole goal of the night for our church and our congregation, to hear the opposing view really clearly, and that was done uh I mean, uh, the pastor did a phenomenal job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Drake over at uh, Grace Church here in Waco um, did a phenomenal job, pre- presented the position very clearly, and then Jeff obviously followed up, presented our position very clearly. Mm-hmm. So it's a good conversation. Let's do a follow-up. I'm going to, I'll throw it to Jeff, and what yeah. we're going to do on this podcast is, uh, if you if you did, if you missed the night, you want to watch it, it's on our YouTube channel. Search Redeemer Waco on YouTube, and you will find it there. You can watch the entire night. Um, but Jeff's going to kind of hammer through his main points of really what convinced him. He did not grow up in the baptized babies world. Neither did I, what convinced him. And then, and then I will follow up with, um, some of what I see are, uh, holes or missteps, whatever you want to call it in the argument against infant baptism. Some things that I think that that view and that position um, really needs to acknowledge and wrestle with. That's so. good. All right, so I'm not going to rehash everything that was said, but I'm going to pick up on I, I, my journey here, is, as Colin mentioned. I, I grew up in the Don't Baptize Baby camp and um, did campus ministry there, went overseas and started campus ministries in the former Soviet Union in this camp, met my wife in this camp, so I love this camp, uh, very familiar with this camp. And then... I changed camps. My world's changed. And I mentioned there were three Mack trucks. I'm not going to tell you the three. I'm just going to tell you the last one, which was I had to do a theological research paper for a class at seminary on the church. Uh, I was uh, starting to have a real interest in the PCA and knew I had to resolve this issue. And and uh, the professor, Dr. Spencer, is a friend of mine. We became friends, I should say that. And he was a Calvin scholar. And he is in the Don't Baptize Baby camp. And so he said, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to do your theological research paper for my class on who should be included in the visible church, believers only or believers and their children. And, uh, and that was a major, that researching that was a major Mack truck and how I changed. But it, 
but it also his approach set me on a rethinking of baptism approach. For instance, before I was approaching this topic, surely like, okay, what what do you think biblically, what does the Bible say about baptism? It was this find a biblical uh, argument, the biblical view, the biblical position on baptism, which is great. That's a good way to approach it. But uh, this was actually healthier for me, and it was better for me because it actually put baptism in where it's actually located, which is in the church. So then it became a question of, okay, what's the biblical way to think about the church? Uh, it's just a slight shift, but it's a big shift. Uh, it's a it's a real healthy shift, I think. It actually pushes you into the full storyline of the Bible and not just into particular proof texts that everybody has and really are never really helpful because everybody has a proof text and you get lost in the weeds. Uh, this was more of getting at the whole map of the Bible, the the people of God, the church, uh, God uh, saving, redeeming, justifying a people for himself from Adam down to whoever the last elect person is going to be on this earth. So that's how it approached. So I, one, one of the things I think I'll just from church history. So how did the first 400 years of the church, uh, did they welcome babies or not? And I think what's the single most striking fact is, is that everyone, the majority of people in that time period, according to the historical sources, there's only two sources that argued for a postponement of baptism or wait till there were three, all the other material, historical resources, uh, treated baptizing babies as an apostolic practice. So that's huge, right? Now, this meaning, is, meaning the apostles did it. Yeah, the apostles did it. So this yeah. is the yeah. so this is third generation leadership, right? This is, you got Paul's first generation, the apostles, second generation would be Timothy, and then third generation would be Timothy's uh, disciples. Mm-hmm. So it's this generation, it's this 100 to 500 generation. Uh, Irenaeus, who is uh, Polycarp's disciple, and Polycarp was a disciple of John. So Irenaeus, third generation, says this was an apostolic practice. Mm-hmm. So if everyone's saying it's an apostolic practice, and it's not, uh, that time period has shown us very clearly what happens when that happens. Mm-hmm. It's the most creed-driven, council-driven, <laughs> uh, defined, belief-driven, affirmation-driven, denial-driven period, maybe in church history, right? That's where Chalcedon, Nicaea, Ephesus, all these. And you're talking about the nature of the church again. So if you have a bunch of uh, theological innovators saying that this is an apostolic practice when it wasn't, there should have been a major controversy and there wasn't. So that's a... That's an interesting thing. So then now you move to Jesus, and I think this was a really, really important one. Uh, There are three passages in the gospel where parents are bringing their children to Jesus, and and that's really key. They're bringing their children, Mm -hmm. and Jesus is taking them in his arms and blessing them and saying, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Uh, If Jesus blesses you, he's welcoming you into the church. Mm -hmm. He's welcoming me. And it's key that of the word children in the Bible. There are two Greek words. One does young children that are like pre-adolescent, pre-teen, pre-puberty age children, you know, and they're not infants, they're not babies, but they're children. Uh, And there's a word called 
and that in the Greek is called technon. But there's also a baby or an infant word for children, which is paideon, and another one called brephe. Uh, so guess which words were being used where these parents are bringing their children? There was no technon, no pre, no adolescence, mm-hmm. preteen, no prepuberty. These were babies, infants. Um, being brought to Jesus, and Jesus is commanding. He says, let the children come to me. So it's not a suggestion. So does Jesus welcome babies in the church? Sure does seem like it. Mm -hmm. Um, And if he blesses you, does the blessing mean something? If he puts his name on you, is that not welcoming you into the church? Isn't Mm -hmm. Jesus the church? So that's a that one's got to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. You have to deal with that. Now, I mean, again... Any one of these is major, but collectively it's like, holy cow. Right. And again, I'm not trying to like win a war here or pick a fight. I, I was in the other camp. Sure. These are the things that I, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. The next thing that happened, I went into the early church and so looked at the book of Acts and you know, the book of Acts is the beginning of the church, right? So that's, this is the age in which, uh, it's the age of proclamation. It's highly missional. It's go and tell. It's people are hearing, believing, being baptized. You got church. That's how it went. So of, of all the baptisms that are recorded at that time period, you would believe that they're going to be all hear, believe, be baptized. Uh, eight of them are that, and we would call those believers-only baptism. They're believers' baptism, which we do believe in, right? Mm-hmm. We just believe in believers and their children' baptism, too. But then of... The 12, eight of them are here, believe, be baptized. Four of them, though, are in the category, a distinct category, unique category called household baptisms. What is that? I mean, what is that? What is a household in the ancient world that's highly family traditionally driven? Are we saying there are no babies in those households? Um, I... I and you just got to ask yourself, why the distinction? I mean, why would you say household? Why wouldn't you just keep the pattern? If it's just believer only, why don't you just say, yeah, Cornelius was baptized, and then his wife believed and was baptized, and their 12-year-old believed and was baptized. Instead, it, it has the one parent coming to faith and a whole household being baptized. Very interesting. That's all I'm going to say. Then you take it... Now let's go to uh, the one that got me. That didn't even get me. The one. Let me interject. Yeah, there. go. Because with this again, it's it's to me a big way to think about this is the thrust. Yeah. You take one of these passages or events alone, um, and sure, you know, if you're trying to build a house on stilts, you put one stilt in the right corner, and maybe the house doesn't stand. You don't have a good argument yet. But all of this, I just want to say, as you as you listen to Jeff say this, it's the thrust of the matter. So even before we recorded, when you think about that household baptism thing, even if you say, well, we don't know that there were for sure infant, I would still press an infant in the house. I would still press the issue to say, well, where does the thrust seem to be going with that kind of language, though? Yeah. Because pretty much anyone, anyone in their right mind would say, well, it seems like they got baptized and everyone else in their house which seems to mean that there seems to be some kind of connection between the faith of a parent and their kids. Yeah. So even if you're like anti-infant baptism, I think I, I want to say we should all agree that that thrust 
says, hmm, yeah. there's something interesting going. And then, oh yeah, and then the infants are being brought to Jesus. So again, I'm just interjecting to say, these are, to me, you can think of these are pillars that are like holding up a whole house together. Uh, no, no, that's really good. And, and y'all, here's the one that got me. I mean, these everything else has been like, and maybe the others get you. Church history is really interesting to me. You know, Jesus seems like, okay, case settled. Uh, household baptisms, incredible, right? Uh, it's unique. You got what's the original historical meaning of a household, right? But the, here's the big one: the first sermon preached at the birth of the church was by Peter. The audience, we're told in two five, are devout Jews, so these folks know their Bible better than you. They know their Bible better than me. They know their history. Uh, they've been catechized. Uh, they know the law. Uh, they know their redemptive history, and they know the Bible, the, the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Peter preaches to them. It says that they're cut to the heart, they believe on the Lord Jesus, and, and uh, are baptized, right? And Peter says this four, after they've heard the gospel, they believe on Jesus, baptism's mentioned. Now four, four's giving you like the basis, like uh, here's the the foundation, the, the spring from which this incredible gospel message has come from that you're hearing. For the promise is for you, for your children, for those who are far off, as many, everyone whom the Lord will call to himself. Um, what does a devout Jew hear there? Uh, well, a devout Jew, I can tell you what a devout Jew hears, because that those exact same words are said to Abraham. The promise is for you, Abraham, and your children. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of us might be thinking, well, of course, the gospel's for everyone. It's for parents. Mm-hmm. It's for their children. It's for everyone. And uh, that's what actually my professor, who was thinking I was going to actually come out in his camp, but I didn't. That's what he said in class. And so I went back to the original language, though, and it's not euangelion, which is gospel, for the gospel is for you and your children. It's not a gospel offer. Remember, this is the basis of the gospel, the basis of Jesus coming, the basis of the new covenant. The basis is the Abrahamic covenant, which was said to be an eternal covenant. That was the announce, that was the beginning, that was the seed reality uh, happening, the promise of Jesus coming. And the word there, though, is euangelion, is epangelion, not euangelion, which is the promise. So it's covenantal language. Mm-hmm. So a Jew, a devout Jew is like, they hear, ah, oh, the basis of this whole thing mm-hmm. is the Abrahamic covenant, yeah. which was for me and my children. And Peter's repeating the exact same thing. Now, this is the base, the birth of the church, right? Y'all know this. This is like it's happening. If babies are not to be included... This would be a good time to tell everybody yeah. at the beginning of the church. But, but Peter doesn't. He actually uses the language that affirms that affirms it's for you and your children. Uh, Time-wise, what should we do here? The connection there, too, is this, that there was a sign of that promise. There was a sign attached to that promise. That, that to me, is the key there to understand that Abraham was given promises, and then he was given a sign, circumcision. Yeah. Yes. So the key connection there is that when they hear that, that this promise is for you and for your children, the absolute natural ingrained next question is, um, okay, what's the sign for me and my children? And 
Peter lets him know, repent and be baptized, not repent and be circumcised. The key there is, great, it's for me and my children, just like Abraham. That's yeah. what they heard. That's what they would have heard. Yep. Now, now, let me know what the sign is for that promise, and I will get the sign. I'll receive it, and I'll give it to my newborns as well. Yes. The sign is baptism, y'all. Cool. Yep. Sounds good. I'll get baptized, and then... Uh, I'll be baptizing my babies as well. Now, if your if your if your babies, if your children were not included in the new covenant, uh, and you use the verbiage of the uh, of the covenant of grace to Abraham, that's the basis of this new covenant, where children were included, and they're not now. This would be the time to tell them. This right. is the beginning of the church, right? Right. This would be the time to tell, because this is a major shift. This isn't just. This is an issue of who is a member of the visible church. This is the nature of the church. This isn't a light yeah. doctrinal matter, yeah. right? This is a big thing. That's why controversy should have happened in the first 400 years if they're practicing something that's not apostolic about the nature of the church, right? All right, and then Peter, I mean, uh, Paul does one last one, and, and, uh, and I think we're done here. Uh, maybe we'll say the Apostle Calvin also had a good argument. But Paul... Paul um, he wrote Ephesians and Colossians uh, to the churches there, right? And he included children as the saints. So he's writing to those children. And he exhorts them to, be, uh, to obey their parents as in the Lord. Uh, so these children are included in the church. They're welcomed in the church because he's writing to them. He singles them out in the church. Now everyone's going to ask, as I ask, well, how old are these church children? And then my next question would be, um, when he's exhorting these children to obey the Lord, um, is Paul being a moralist? In other words, is he saying to these kids, listen, uh, you obey in order to be loved and accepted because you're not in. Or, listen, I want you to obey your parents because you're already loved and accepted by God. Obedience is is what happens when you're already loved and accepted. We obey because we're loved. We don't obey to get loved, to get blessed. We, we obey because we are. Well, obviously, Paul's not a moralist, and obviously these children, he assumes, are believers. And so the question is, you know, for me and for any parent out there, and this is probably only uh, makes sense to any parent, when do you start telling your children to obey you? How old? And I jokingly said last night, the, mo <laughs> the moment they were coming out, I welcomed them into the world and said, I'm the king of this house, not you, and we're going to get that straight, especially when my boys came out. Um, I mean, do you wait till they're 40 to tell them to obey? Two, one? I mean, we're telling, I mean, our kids, some of our kids were walking at 10 and 10 months, and I'm telling them not to put their finger in the light socket, mm -hmm. right? So anyhow, that... Again, there's more evidence here. And then finally, I think uh, for Paul was in Corinthians, many people are coming to know Christ. Uh, you can, it's chaotic. Can you imagine? I mean, this is the beginning of the church. People are coming to know Christ. One spouse is coming to know Christ. The other's not. Uh, you can just see the pastoral care questions and confusion, and Paul's trying to address them as best he can. And in this one particular Corinthian passage, he's telling them, listen, if one of you believes, if one spouse believes and the other one doesn't and wants to like divorce them, let them go. If they want to stay, let them stay. You could just see, right? And then he says this otherwise, because this was the whole point of it, otherwise, 
uh, your children would be unholy, but as it is, they are holy in the Lord. So that's huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, one believing parent, um, unless we're just playing doctrinal word salad and words don't matter, made a child holy. So you can see it. You can see the question. Listen, I believe my, my husband doesn't. What about my children? And Paul's saying, oh, yeah, they're... Do I treat them as unregenerate? Do I treat them as being outside the church, unclean, uh, unholy? Or do I treat them as being in the people of God, holy, clean, regenerate, uh, welcomed into the church? And Paul's answer was, of course, welcomed. Mm-hmm. So there's some of the most significant evidence. The last one comes from Calvin, and Calvin says it this way. He says, everyone knows that babies were welcomed in the Old Testament church. Everyone knows that. Nobody argues that that's not the case. So babies were welcomed when grace was a seed, when grace was a pattern, when grace was a shadow, uh, when grace was an acorn. Uh, How could children not be included when grace is the oak tree, when grace is the sun and the substance? Because how could... How could the new covenant be less gracious, less merciful, less reaching, less extravagant than the old mm-hmm. that included babies? And he said, listen, if the old covenant is more extravagant, if the shadow outshines the sun, then I want the shadow back. Mm-hmm. I want the old covenant back. And that was the period at the end of my research paper that I'm like, yeah, I'm convinced. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, you can catch the whole night on our YouTube uh, channel. Just search Redeemer Waco on YouTube. Uh, You can find it there, hear all of that more in-depth, as well as the opposing position. Here, let me give you my follow-up, and I may end up doing like a monologue podcast on this or something. I'm definitely going to like write something, put it on goodnews.goodadvice.com to really uh, summarize all this and make it clear. But here were some of the things that got me, again, growing up Baptist and and then non-denominational and baptizing babies to me was like, uh, I mean, like the Mars, like foreign, like, I mean, as a foreign world that I had nothing to do with and thought was weird. And I'm not Catholic. Like, why would I do that? That was basically how I grew up. Um, but here, here are some, here are some things that I think are helpful, but also some holes now that I've come to be convinced of infant baptism. Um, some holes that I see now when I hear opposing positions, like the position I used to take, um, or at least, you know, took in a kind of a rudimentary form. Uh, but one of the keys in all of this is to know that, that a lot of this or all of its argument, um, it's an implicit argument. You're not going to find a verse that says baptize babies, and you're not going to find a verse that says don't baptize babies. And I think that's why someone today even said, you know, when I heard Drake speak, I was like, hmm, I've got some questions. And then when I heard Jeff speak, I was like, oh, I'm totally convinced of infant baptism. I, I, I It's probably more rare that someone could listen to a debate on this and be like, oh, it's so obvious. Because it is you're arguing from an implicit reality here. You've got to take the, the, the totality of scripture. You've got to take all these different verses and all these different realities and then piece it together. Here's, here's why I'm convinced um, of it though. And, and some holes I see is that number one is I've seen uh, John MacArthur did this in his kind of classic debate with RC Sproul is that, um, that circumcision is 
merely called a sign, an ethnic sign yeah, or a political sign. Um, that, that is great to argue against infant baptism because we know that baptism is a, uh, it is not an ethnic sign. It's not a political sign. And if circumcision is merely an ethnic sign, then you can, you can create a big break in between those two. There's, right. there's just total discontinuity. They have nothing to do with each other. The problem is that Romans 4 makes it ex- extremely clear, and even when circumcision is given, it's extremely clear, it's, it's clear in Genesis, that it is not principally, centrally an ethnic or political sign. That, that is secondary at best. Romans 4.11 calls it a sign of faith. It is it, it was not given to Moses. It wasn't given to like King David when it's like, hey, now you're reigning and here's like the political sign that you're part of the nation. It was given to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant that in Romans is shown to be about uh, receiving the imputed righteousness of Jesus through faith alone from and through Christ alone. What was the sign of that in the shadow days? By The language of shadow comes from Hebrews. If you look in Hebrews. It was a shadow of the real thing to come. So Abraham is saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Jesus just hadn't showed up yet. That's all. Um, The substance is the same there. The sign at that time was of this faith was circumcision. Why is that such a big deal? Um, Because, well, what's the sign of the new covenant? What's the sign of faith today? It's baptism. Yeah. There is clear continuity there. Yeah. So, again, the, 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 and the sign was given to babies. In circumcision was given to infants. Yeah, so and we're we arguing. we all agree. You have to agree with Romans four eleven. It's a sign of faith, and then you have to agree. As and, and I'm t- some of this is just coming like subconsciously from R. C. Sproul's uh, <laughs> debate that God there is a precedent for God to explicitly command people to give a sign of faith. Not just an ethnic sign, not a political sign, a sign of faith to infants, uh, infants who have no idea what's going on, mm-hmm. right? God is in that business. He has been in the business in the past. We all have to agree on that. What we are saying is there's continuity. God did not get out of that business uh, in the new covenant. It did not go from the sign of faith is for you and your infants to the sign of faith is just for you, but no yeah. longer your infants. Okay, that's a big hole that I see um, where where circumcision is merely ethnic and political. It's not, and when you realize it's not from Romans four eleven, you now you have to deal with that. Um, There's a, one more evidence that that's so good. There's one more evidence that it wasn't just a political ethnic sign. Is God hunted Moses down because he wasn't. And his wife had to circumcise him. Yeah. um, Which points to it's beyond ethnicity. It's now a spiritual reality. It's a sign of faith. Like you're either a part of me or you're not. Yeah. And I mean that, yeah. Well, so here's another hole that I see um, is that, and it's along the similar lines, which is when we talk about the new covenant and what it is, um, if the new covenant is replacing the old covenant in the sense of like, there's this clean break, you have this old covenant and you've got old covenant signs, and then there's this clean break and it's all kind of thrown in the trash. And there's just this, this total replacement that works well to argue against infant baptism, because again, you just kind of, 
throw away circumcision. It's got nothing, it wasn't a shadow of anything. There's nothing in the new covenant that is connected to it because the new covenant is, well, it just replaced it. But that is not reformed language about the covenants of God. Reformed language is fulfillment, shadow in the real thing. A shadow is kind of like the real thing. It's connected to the real thing. Um, the real thing doesn't replace a shadow. It casts a shadow, right? So when um, I, I see this hole in the, the opposing argument, when you start to try to make this clean break rather than use fulfillment language, because if you use fulfillment language, it goes like this. Where did we get the Lord's Supper from? From Passover. It's the fulfillment of the shadow of Passover, the Passover meal. All right, where do we get baptism from? It's the fulfillment of the shadow of circumcision. Um, so I see a hole there where where everyone agrees that that Passover becomes the Lord's Supper. But then, you know, generally speaking, the Baptist view or the don't baptize baby view or whatever is that circumcision just goes away. It, it's not fulfilled by baptism. It just goes away. Baptism then comes in through the side door. And then what we're told is that circumcision is replaced by the circumcision of the heart and the Holy Spirit, which is odd because that means the sign was replaced by like the real thing. You know, the sign is replaced by... Uh, And it also implies that it can imply, I think accidentally, that maybe the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in in individual hearts in the Old Testament, which isn't true. So there's just this kind of like, I I don't want to call it, I I just see them as holes that aren't being acknowledged is basically my point. Yeah. And and I'm not even saying they're not being purposely acknowledged. I'm saying, you know, if I was in the audience and I wasn't emceeing last night, those are probably the questions I would ask. One yeah. of them did get asked really well, like the shadow. Yeah. Because, hey, if if this is fulfillment, what did replace baptism? And if we say, well, the Holy Spirit, it's like, well, wait a minute. That that doesn't make sense. That's not a new sign. The right. Holy Spirit in our hearts is not a sign. The Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament. Holy Spirit's in the New Testament. Well, right? Correct. The, the covenant of grace is continuity. It's continuing. And again, we're moving from... Uh, an acorn to the oak tree. We're not moving in a different kind. It's not a replacement. It's the progressive revelation of the one thing. And that's where that's it. That Just so we're clear, um, that understanding of covenant theology is not covenant theology. That's a new understanding of covenant theology. Replacement theology is not covenant theology in its classic sense. Right. Uh, there's a guy named Paul Jewett who's actually the one that um, I think was the first to um, suggest this new way of thinking about covenant theology uh, as the new covenant being a replacement as opposed to the fulfillment. So uh, as he received in those days from covenant theologians, uh, that's fine. You can, you can have a different uh, covenant theology, but it's not covenant theology. You can create a different way of looking at covenants and form a different way of theology, but that's not it. 
So um, obviously a lot more can be said. We'll, we'll cap this uh, at a little over 30 minutes. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe put out some writing. Um, we'll probably revisit this topic at least in a significant way once a year, um, just because it is a big topic. There's tons of misunderstanding. There's a lot of, it, it's not an easy topic to, to sit down and really start thinking about mm. again, because it's, you're working with all of scripture and you're working with big things and concepts like covenant and covenants and shadow and fulfillment. And what in the world are you talking about? Um, so hopefully this was helpful again. Hopefully the, the night we had last night was helpful. Um, again, both guys, Drake was un- unbelievably clear and thoughtful. You know, I was telling Jeff, what after, a great dude. I mean, what a warrior to come into our place and yep. stand up and communicate views, uh, a baptism that obviously our tradition doesn't hold and we don't hold. It was a great night. It was awesome. And, and, uh, and so respect, even though there's some things we disagree with, there's a lot we agree with about baptism. Amazing. Uh, A lot we agree with some things we disagree with, obviously principally about, you know, essentially like who it's for, um, but totally respect his intellect and his reasoning and his, his, um, his devotion to scripture. Yeah. Right. he, he showed, I, I, we are, we're committed to scripture and understanding the Bible. Yeah. Okay. And the divine energies y'all of unity is not through baptism. Yeah. It's through the gospel. through Jesus. So our deepest unity and the divine energies that fuel unity in the body of Christ is always only Christ alone. Yeah. So ho- hopefully we can maybe involve Drake, um, and something else that's maybe not a yeah. debate at some point. I don't know what, yeah, but um, but both united in the gospel together yeah. um, on mission to see more people know Jesus. So um, big thanks to Drake, to Grace Church, those from Grace that came out, asked questions, engaged. It was super friendly and super fun. Mm-hmm. So, so great night. Anyway, uh, hopefully, guys, this stuff is helpful on baptism. Um, next week, uh, who knows what we'll talk about, but we'll be back next week.